Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our online ministry at Grace Baptist Church. This week, we've been trying to process the Ontario government's announcement about reopening places of worship and just try to think through the details and safety requirements that need to be in place. In the meantime, I'm glad you're here. And if you're listening in for the first time today, an extra special welcome to you. Love to hear from you in the comments below. Now, I wonder whether you can relate to the story of Henry Dunant. He was born in Geneva in the 19th century and grew up during the revival that came to Western Switzerland and Southeastern France. He was in a, grew up in a Christian home and when he was 19, he started a group that met to study the Bible and help the poor. In his free time, he made prison visits and he did social work. He was definitely what we would call today an idealist, but in the very best sense of that word. He went on to become a successful banker. And in 1859, in order to resolve a business dispute, he traveled first to France and then from there on to Italy to make his appeal to the Emperor of France. He arrived in Solferino where the Emperor was engaged in this deadly battle. Dunant was horrified by what he saw. There were thousands of dead soldiers, tens of thousands who were wounded. And seeing them lying helpless on the battlefield, it was more than he could bear. He stayed on in Solferino for weeks, but even after he returned to Geneva, he was never the same. His business fell apart. He declared bankruptcy. He went into debt and he was shunned by his friends. The horror of war had robbed his innocence. It had spoiled his idealism. And I wonder if you've experienced the same thing. For some people, that's what happened with 9-11. For others, more recently, it was the murder of George Floyd. For some of you, it may have been a painful divorce, or maybe the death of a parent or someone that you love. For me, it was a sin of a person I deeply respected. I think that most people are born idealists, but along the way, our innocent thoughts about how the world works is lost, and it begins to affect our faith because we start to wonder, does it even matter if God is good when we live in a world that's so bad? I don't know if you've ever dealt with that question, if it's something that you've ever asked. But when you're finally confronted by the brutal reality of sin, either in your own heart or as with Henry Dunant in the world that we live in, you begin to feel as if evil is frustrating the good plan of God. I'd like to look with you at a passage that deals with that. And if you're not ready, I'd encourage you to pause the video at this point, grab a Bible, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 27. I'll begin re reading at verses uh, 1 to 13. Now, before I read, if you grew up in church, it's probably a story you'll remember from Sunday school. Uh, when you were young, you may have learned that it was a story about not lying or about being a good brother. <laughs> but its message is far deeper than that. And maybe it's not until you've lost some of that idealism that you can fully appreciate it. I'll read Genesis 27, verses 1 to 13. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older brother and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old. 
I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. This is the word of God. Now, as the story begins, Isaac is old and his eyesight is fading. He calls his oldest son Esau and he sends him on a hunting trip. He loves the food that Esau makes for him. And now in his old age, it's pretty much all he thinks about. But today is special. He wants a special meal from his special son because he's going to give him a special gift. He wants to bless him before he dies. Now, at this point, Isaac is at least 100 years old, and he'll actually live for another 20 years. But he doesn't want to leave anything to chance. He wants to make sure Esau gets the blessing. And so he plans a special event to make it happen. The blessing that he's going to pass on is no ordinary thing. God has vowed to bring blessing to the world, but to do it through a particular person. Abraham was chosen first, and then his youngest son, Isaac. Now, Isaac wants to make sure that his favorite son gets it. But he acts in secret because he and his wife, Rebecca, aren't on the same page on this thing. And he doesn't want any interference. As we're watching this scene unfold, we want to call out to him, Stop! (laughs) Because we know this isn't God's plan. We saw last week in Genesis 25, 23, that God had said, the older will serve the younger. God had chosen Jacob. But Isaac's the one handing out the blessing, and he's determined to bless Esau, to bless him instead. It makes me think of the many times when it feels like our lives are at the mercy of the people in authority over us. Maybe it's a boss or a parent or a politician or a teacher. We feel like we know what God's good plan is, but there's someone in charge who doesn't care about God's plan. And it seems like they're intent on getting in God's way. To be completely honest, it felt a little bit like that when we were trying to get through the red tape to build a parking lot here, didn't it? Now, we're relieved at first when we hear that Rebecca has overheard about this secret meeting. She must be on God's side. But as we watch, she tells Jacob to prepare some food for his father 
so that he can get the blessing instead of Esau. And she wants him to lie to do it. In verse 15, she actually takes one of Esau's best outfits and puts it on Jacob and then covers his hands and neck with goat furs. What she wants is good, but surely this isn't the way. The ends can't justify the means. This seems like a recipe for forfeiting God's help, not gaining it. And we want her to stop because surely this is going to derail God's plans. She reminds us of the warning from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. In 2 Timothy 2, 5, Paul says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And Rebecca sure isn't competing according to the rules here. She reminds us of people who have tempted us to get what we want, even get what God wants, but to do it in a way that would deny God and all that we know of what's right. Surely Rebecca is going to ruin everything. Now, by the time that we hear from Jacob, we're desperately hoping that he'll put an end to all of this. Maybe he's prayed about it. Maybe he's resolved to not go along with his mother's plan. Maybe he'll just appeal to his father to follow the plan of God. But then we read verse 19. Looking like he's dressed for uh, a a school play where he's uh, playing the part of the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. It's such a bold lie that it shocks us. And yet he follows it with another and then another and another. And sadly, we identify with him. We think of times when we've taken matters into our own hands, when we've lied and told ourselves that, well, at least our heart was in the right place. Or our intentions were good, even if we got our hands a little dirty. Now, at this point in the story, we give up hope. Isaac's in charge of the blessing, and he's too selfishly absorbed with his food to do the right thing. Rebecca has a position to talk some sense into her husband, but instead she chooses a path of lying and deceit. And while we held out hope that maybe Jacob might do something to turn things around, he just goes along with it. He's complicit in the sin. Surely God's walked away in search of a different family. Then we read in verse 26, and we know that this must be where it all falls apart. Isaac asks Jacob to come near and kiss him. From a distance, he might have been fooled, but up close, surely he's going to recognize that his son's dressed like Chewbacca. And then we read in verse 27, so he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. He blessed him. And it's not just a half-hearted, second-rate B-team blessing. It's a real deal. This is the promise of Abraham. Starting in verse 28, Isaac, Isaac speaks the blessing over his son's life. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. 
Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And what this shows us is that the evil of this world can't frustrate the plan of God. That person in authority over you who doesn't care about God or his will can't frustrate the plan of God. That person who's tempting you to cut corners and let the ends justify the means cannot frustrate the plan of God. And your own sins, your failures, your blunders, your stumblings and disobedience, none of them can frustrate the plan of God. Did you really think that history hinged on you or me or any of us? John Piper puts it like this. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He's plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And nothing, I would add, nothing in this world can stop him. None of this world's evil will stop his good plan. Now that's incredibly encouraging. But if I'm honest, I'm not sure how I feel about it. If our sin doesn't derail the good plan of God, then does that mean I should just keep on sinning? Are you telling me that people's sin just doesn't matter? If that's the case, then this world doesn't seem very fair. And honestly, I'm not sure how far fair God is. Let's look at how this chapter wraps up and see if there's any help for us in sorting these things out. And when we get to verse 30, we, we, we see that as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Esau walks in. Jacob and Esau probably passed each other on the way. And I picture Esau looking at Jacob's ridiculous costume and thinking, I wonder what that's all about. Now, as it dawns on Isaac that he has blessed Jacob and not Esau, it says in verse 33 that Isaac trembled very violently. Now, you don't tremble violently just because you've made a mistake. He realizes that he's disregarded and opposed the will of God, and God has opposed him as a result. God confronts him with the consequences of his sin. Is that still sinking in? We hear the voice of Esau in verse 34. It, it says that he cried out with an exceedingly bitter cry. He had traded his birthright for a good meal and it looked like he would get away with it. But now he saw himself cheated out of the blessing and it came through his father's hunger for a good meal. What's, what, what is it with this family and food, right? He had disregarded the blessing of God, and now he regrets its passing. God confronts him with the consequences of his sin. Now, Jacob looks like a guy who got away with it. He got what he wanted, despite his sin. But because he cheated and schemed his way to getting what God had already promised to give him, he now has a brother who, according to verse 41, not only hates him, but is intent on killing him. Although he's lied to, get his, uh, uh, lied to get this great blessing from his father, he'll soon be on the run without anything to show for it. His little acting gig 
is going to result in a long, hard detour where he'll have to deal with his lying and cheating ways. God confronts him with the consequences of his sin. Now, finally, we have Rebecca. Do you think she got off free for her part in all this? First of all, she's terrified by the thought that Esau is going to murder her favorite son. And so she sends Jacob away. In, in verse 43, it says that, uh, uh, she says, Therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. It, it sounds like she's sending him away for the weekend. But he'll be gone for another 20 years. And there's no record that she ever sees him again. God confronts her again with the consequences of her sin. And so I learned that the evil of this world can't frustrate the plan of God, but those who try will face the consequences of their sin. As Moses would warn the Israelites in, in Numbers 32, 23, he says, be sure your sin will find you out. When you look at the evil and injustice and the corruption in our world, know that it's powerless to stop God's good plan. But also realize that God will confront each one with their part in opposing him. Nobody resists God and gets away with it. And so a passage like this forces us to examine our lives. We examine our hearts for sin because not only because it grieves God, but because it invites his consequences. Are you living more for your appetites than the word of God, the way Jacob was? Does your lust for more food or sex or money or power or entertainment control your decisions? Or, or are you seeking the right thing in the wrong way, the way Rebecca did? Do you tell yourself the ends justify the means? Or maybe you're not the one who thinks up the sin, but you're quick to go along with it the way Jacob did. God's word warns us to turn from sin because God will confront us with it. And whether he does that gently or painfully depends on our response. Now, before we leave this story, there's one last question we need to address. Did anybody notice that there weren't any heroes in this story? Everyone seemed intent on getting their own way and frustrating the plan of God. And presumably that was deliberate. It reminds us of the kind of world we live in, but also of the kind of people that we are. So what hope is there for us? I think we get a hint of that for, from some false hope that Rebecca holds out for her son in verse 13. That's when she's trying to convince her son to go along with her plan. And he's worried, not about the morality of it. He doesn't seem to have a problem with that. But by the fact that his father might end up cursing him instead of blessing him. She responds in verse 13, let your curse be on me, my son. Wow. She's got his back. She's ready to take a bullet for him. Or so she says. But did you notice what she says when it's all over? In verse 45, she tells him to go away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Did you hear it? 
what you have done to him. If I'm Jacob, I'm thinking, wasn't that your plan? Weren't we kind of in this together? Didn't you promise to take the curse for me? And I think this is the way it so often works. When people talk us into sin, they have us convinced they're with us 100%. But when it's all over, so often we're the only ones holding the bag. Don't you wish that there was someone who would really take our curse for us? Don't you wish there was someone who would take the bullet for us, that loved us and was committed to us that much? Someone who would rescue us from the evil of the evil mess of this world that we know in our hearts we contribute to as well. Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus did exactly that. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As Jesus died on the cross, it seemed as if evil had frustrated the good plan of God. It felt like sin had won. But when the world was at its worst, God was at his best. And through his death, Jesus took our curse upon himself so that we might inherit the blessing that was promised to Jacob. When you trust in Jesus, you not only receive that, that gift of him taking the curse of sin, you also begin to change the way that you see the world. Our idealism may be gone, but we have a hope that's greater than idealism. We can see terrible evil and sin, but know that there's a good God who's at work in the midst of it, and we can join him in that good work. That's actually what Henry Dunant did. I, I told you that he was broken by the horrors of war seeing thousands of wounded soldiers lying helpless on the battlefield, it changed him. It wrecked him. But he believed in a God whose plan couldn't be frustrated by the evil of this world. He would later write of a sense of God's will. He said, it seemed to me that I had something to accomplish, a sacred duty, and that it was destined to have fruits of infinite consequence for mankind. He committed himself to try to relieve some of the sufferings that he witnessed. He established the Red Cross, a neutral organization to provide care to wounded soldiers, didn't matter which side you came from. He was a catalyst for the formation of the Geneva Convention, seeking to provide better protections for victims of war. And he was awarded the very first Nobel Peace Prize. It's easy to become disillusioned by the evil and injustice of this world. But there's a good God and his good plan can't be stopped. He proved that to us and he, as he took our sins upon himself at the cross. And now he invites us to be part of the solution. He calls us to cooperate with his plan instead of working against it. To believe in God's good plan and to see it by faith that we, we might work to bring it about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that nothing, nothing can stop your good plan in this world. 
We need to know that because we see so much that is wrong, so much that is evil. And we're even discouraged by the evil we see in our own hearts. Help us, Father, to cooperate with your plan instead of resisting. Help us to bring the sin that we know that is a part of, uh, of, of what we have done and what we, what we do. Help us to bring it to Jesus Christ through faith in him to receive the forgiveness and the pardon and the salvation and the blessing that he died to provide. Help us to remember and to realize that through faith in him, our curse is taken away because he took it for us at the cross. Father, as we see our world and our circumstances, give us faith to see your good plan, to trust it, and to be a part of it, to cooperate with you and all that you're trying to do. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I pray that today's message has not only given you hope, but will give you eyes to see what God is doing in our world and how you might be a part of it. But if it's created questions in your mind or if there's burdens on your heart that you need prayer for, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if there's someone you know who'd be encouraged by this message, then share it with them and point them to the good God whose plan can't be frustrated by this world's evil. For more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.